fortunate to have Adam Hyatt on today's podcast. Hyatt is the head men's coach at Montana Tech in Butte. The Ore Diggers just finished the season 29-5 and and advanced to the quarterfinals of the NAIA National Tournament. Of course, Idaho listeners probably know who won that tournament, so uh, College of Idaho uh, there. But uh, anyway, uh, the Ore Diggers did really well. Uh, Hyatt's uh, Idaho ties run deep. He was the standout. He was a standout player at Bonners Ferry High School and then spent two years at Rick's College when it was Rick's College and it had athletics. He also got his college coaching start at the University of Idaho under George Pfeiffer. Coach Hyatt, thanks for talking some basketball with us today. How's everything in Butte? It's a little snowy over here. Uh, it's a beautiful springtime in Butte, but I'm uh, grateful to be here with you. All right. Yeah. Puxitani Phil was not incorrect when he said that there was going to be plenty more uh, winter this year, right? Yeah, it really, it started early and it's going late. It's been a, it's been a longer winter than we're, what we're accustomed to, but that's fine. Hey, the best thing about basketball is it's an indoor sport, so it doesn't really matter. Definitely. Definitely. I totally agree with you there. So I uh, wanted to talk to you first about Bonners Ferry. I mean, they're in the midst of a really, really good run. They've got some great basketball talent that's coming there. And I think some of the younger players that are going to be uh, showing up to the high school for the next year, uh, maybe even better than some of the players that they have now, but you played at Bonners Ferry. So what are some things about your uh, playing days there for the Badgers that you remember? So I actually know the current team very well. Um, I, you know, Nate Williams, the coach, you know, he's, he's a great guy, really good coach. Uh, Jed Bateman's his assistant. You know, I was up there this past summer doing some workouts with the players. Uh, I, I knew right away. So, I mean, it was 90 minute workout. And after 90 minutes, you know, I told coach Williams, like, you guys going to have a chance to win the whole thing because they're, they're really good. They're, they're deep. They're, they're talented. They, it's, it's a high point at Bonners Ferry right now. So I'm really happy for those guys. The league was a lot different. The Intermountain League, the IML was a whole different ball game when I was in high school, uh, ni- 1994 uh, to 1997. Uh, or 93 to 97. And, it, you know, of course, we had Moscow in the conference and Kellogg, Priest River, Lakeland was in the conference, St. Mary's, Bonners Ferry. So it was a it was a really good league. And during the time that I was uh, in, in the competing in the IML, the the IML had either a state champion or championship game appearance team or third place or whatever, but always, always multiple teams in the top three. In fact, I remember my senior year, Moscow won the state championship in the A2. If you remember that back in the day yeah. where you know, A1 used to be the largest classification than A2, and we were A2. And uh, Kellogg also represented the IML, and they finished third at state. So we had the first and the third uh, place teams. But So that, that's the biggest takeaway that I recall is that the league was just so much bigger. There was a lot of quality players in the conference. Um, Moscow had a couple guys that you know played high-level basketball. One, one went to Oklahoma State. Another guy went to Stanford at the time. One went to University of Idaho. Um, at, you know, as, as a player as well. So it's a little bit unusual uh, during those days where you would have so many higher end players. Uh, I think there was a kid named Fisher from Casey Fisher, I believe his name was from Kellogg. Um, he, he went and played at CSI. Um, I'm not sure where he went after that, but you know, he was a really good player as well. So just lots of good players. Bonners Ferry had a lot of good players as well. The league was very deep. Uh, it, it was fun. I mean, it was kind of where obviously you get your start from a basketball standpoint. And, you know, the only thing that was, a little different then than than now is just the the lack of exposure you know there were so many good teams and good players but it was just really hard to kind of get your name out there and, and get a lot of a lot of exposure so i was pretty fortunate to be able to get out of bonners and continue my career 
Well, you guys had uh, some great teams, like you said, there at Bonners. I mean, I remember I graduated from Sandpoint in 1995, and so that year you had uh, that really good team. I remember yeah. uh, Benson LaRue, uh, Gavin Glindeman. Uh, I'm forgetting uh, some of the Chris other. Chris Cravel. Yeah, Chris Cravel is do, still down in the Coeur d'Alene area and stuff like that. That was a really good team. And I think one of our claim to fame is that we actually beat that team when they were ranked number one in the in the old, old uh, A2 uh, division. That was a, a a big win for us. I remember that. Yeah, that was a big upset. Yeah, we were uh, we were depressed. You can't ever lose a sandpoint, you know, on box. <laughs> you know, but, but again, though, that was another big difference, too, is uh, – those all the teams in North Idaho, they played each other all the time. We would play Coeur d'Alene and Lake City and Sandpoint and Post Falls. We'd play them in football and basketball, you know. And now, now with the you know the the two classification differences between the five A's and the three A's, they just don't play as much, you know. And that that was really fun to be able to compete against the bigger schools. Well, the other thing, real quick, is that that IEL is now down to two teams, or IML is down to two two teams, and uh, yeah, just crazy to think about where it was at, and now now there's uh, those two uh, Timberlake and Bonners Ferry kind of competing for uh, for that one spot to to state. It's really strange, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, I, I was kind of giving them a hard time a little bit, and I said, "Are you guys going to hang a banner for winning the league this year?" There's only two teams, <laughs> you know. But they were they were an incredible team, and they they had a great year, and they have a lot of guys back. So I don't think Bonners Ferry is going anywhere anytime soon. All right, if you're an old time Idahoan, then you remember the days of Rick's College, and that's where you went after uh, after uh, high school. And so, can you kind of tell us about what was like there, and you know, um, maybe what we're kind of missing without a Rick's College uh, in uh, in Idaho anymore? Boy, and I, again, it's just the, that conference was so different uh, back then. It was Region 18 uh, in the national. It was a national junior college, uh, Division One and uh, tremendous teams. We had all the way down in the South, we had Dixie uh, Dixie College, which is now called Utah Tech. It's a division one school. Uh, we had Utah Valley State College, which is now Utah Valley University. They're in the semifinals of the NIT right now. So they are, they're now a division one school, but they were a junior college. Uh, Snow College, uh, Colorado Northwestern, Salt Lake Community, North Idaho College, which was part of the conference for a long time, Ricks, Treasure Valley, uh, it, there were 10 teams in the league. It was very, very deep. Um, the, what people don't understand or what, what they don't may not remember is that Ricks was one of the premier junior college athletic departments in the entire country. I mean, they they churned out 20 plus division one players in football every single year that transferred out of there. You know, lots of division one players from the basketball program. They had a really good baseball program. It, it was just a, it was a stellar program incredible facilities, coaching, they invested, they cared. The community was, uh, you know, a little bit up in arms when they made the announcements. So that was, that was the hard thing for me is that I was down there in 90, 1997, 98. And, you know, I was, uh, I, I, I was planning on serving a church mission. And so I decided that I, it was going to be in my best interest to redshirt coming out of high school. And we had a very, very uh, experienced veteran team. We ended up winning the, the conference that year and went to the national tournament. And so we had a great, a great team. But I was super excited to, to leave for two years and then come back and be able to play for two consecutive seasons. And so when I returned, I was actually down in Rexburg, Idaho, working at a summer basketball camp. And word started to circulate that there was a there was a huge announcement that was going to 
it, that was going to affect the the entire college. And so we started speculating as players about what this could be. And there were rumors that, hey, Rick's College is going to turn into a four-year university. And so there was a lot of chatter amongst us players about, hey, maybe we won't have to transfer. We could just stay here and play for four years, perhaps, if that was something that was going to benefit us. And then we went to that meeting and they announced that, yes, indeed, that Ricks was going to transition and become BYU University, uh, Brigham Young University, Idaho. But with that transition, they were going to discontinue athletics. And it was a gut punch. Yeah, it was a really hard thing to hear. And so we were all looking at each other thinking, well, what does this mean for us? Are we going to have to go find another place to play? But they assured us that they were going to uh, they were going to honor all the all the scholarships and they were going to phase it out over the course of two seasons. So our first season um, there in that transition period was a was a pretty good year because we still had a lot of our recruits there and and we had a really good season. But that second year when when I came back. We were really good with a starting five, but we didn't have hardly any depth at all because it was, you know, it was hard to to really recruit a lot of high end players, knowing that you got one year and then the program's going to fold. You got to find another place to play. So that was a little bit more of a challenging season, but you know, it, it was very fond memories. I loved it down there. Uh, as I said, the some of these rivalry games, the the CSI versus Rick's College rivalry game was intense, and it was standing room only, both places, home and away. Uh, tremendous players. I mean that. Some of the guys that we played against uh, when I was in that conference, a kid named Marcus Banks, he was the he ended up transferring to UNLV. He was a lottery pick in the NBA draft. He was the 13th overall pick. Um, we had Tony Bobbitt at CSI. He played for the Lakers for a number of years. Um, you know, uh, we had Jaime Lareda down at Dixie. He played in the NBA. I mean, there was so many guys that that weren't just high level Division One players, but were NBA guys. You know, so it was a it was a loaded league. Um, and, but, and you grow a lot, you can't help but grow a lot, but I mean, you can kind of imagine coming from a small North Idaho school, you know, as a player where again, pre AAU days where you didn't have as much of that exposure against playing some of, some of these bigger, more athletic teams and players, and then going down there and, and then competing in that conference, you, you it's a sink or swim proposition, honestly. I mean, you, you got two choices. You're going to wash out or you're going to have to you know, step up and rise to the surface. And so it was great for my development as a player to be able to compete there at Ricks for two years. So you got your college coaching start at uh, the University of Idaho. How did you end up there? So I played after Ricks, I played two years at Westminster College uh, down in Salt Lake City, um, played for an incredible coach, uh, Tommy Connor. He was uh, fantastic. Um, during In our conference was Lewis Clark State College out of Lewiston, Idaho. And so their coach was George Pfeiffer, and he was a great coach there um, at LC for a number of years. And, you know, after my playing career ended, I went to grad school at BYU and I was helping down there. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how I was going to get my foot in the door from a coaching standpoint. And two years after I graduated, Coach Pfeiffer got the head job at, at University of Idaho. And immediately I called my coach, uh, Coach Connor. I said, can you call Coach Fife and see if there's any spot available for me to get started? And he did. And sure enough, there was. And so, you know, he hired me as a young assistant. Uh, I was able to work for Coach Pfeiffer up there. And sometimes in this business, I mean, these jobs, I can't overemphasize how hard they are to get. I mean, they're, it's hard to get a volunteer job, honestly, at the college level. It's extremely competitive. There's a lot of lot of people that are jockeying for positions, you know, with, with these uh, different places. So I was very fortunate that I had that connection, you know, of being able to, to, to having been able to compete against Coach Pfeiffer, but then also have my coach be really good friends with him. So that was a, that was a wonderful experience too. And again, I've been really blessed in my career because at the time, at the time, um, 
Idaho was in the was in the old WAC Western yeah. Athletic Conference, and so we had incredible players. I mean, Nevada Reno they had Nick Fazekas and Ramon Sessions. I mean, high level NBA guys and Paul George at Fresno State, and you know just player um, J.C. Carroll at Utah State, Kobe Kobe Carl at Boise State. There were so many quality players in that conference. You know, it, it was just a great experience to to really start off my coaching career with trying to learn how to defend some of these high level players. So you ended up at, uh, eventually ended up at Montana t- uh, Tech. You uh, coached at your alma mater for a little bit, but you took over a, a job that just did not have a whole lot of success or a program that did not have a whole lot of success. So, you know, kind of thinking back to when you took that job to advancing to the quarterfinals of the NAIA tournament this year, what would you say were two or three keys in your approach to building that program at Montana Tech? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you it's it had been a long time uh since there was a lot of success. I mean, again, like you said, I was I coached at Westminster for a number of years. You know, Montana Tech was actually in the conference, no longer now. I mean, Westminster is in a different conference. But uh so of course you have a little bit of external familiarity with it. And you know, for the my whole experience as a player and as a as a coach down there at Westminster, they were the kind of the doormat of the conference, you know, they just couldn't, they couldn't get a lot of traction for whatever reason. And, and so, you know, when we came up here and, and interviewed for the job and just saw that there was a lot of potential, uh, but it was just going to be, it's going to be a little bit of a process. So the biggest thing that we want to establish right away is I know it's a buzzword and everyone talks about culture, but it's so, but it's so important because in our, in our estimation, we just needed to change the way that, that we were going to operate. You know, we need to start to believe that we were going to be winners and and there was a process to become successful. And that process, you know, begins early in the morning with the weight room and, and individual skill workouts and a, in a way of which you practice where it's like a practice is going to be more competitive than, than, even your actual games, you know, the way that you prepare, the way that you have uh, scouting reports, the way, the way that your guys go into every competition confident that they're going to, that they have the plan to be able to be successful. And, you know, we, the, we knew that, that it was going to be a uphill climb because it takes a while to be able to get the talent that you want to be able to win at that level. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter what our talent level was. We were going to coach the exact same way as if they were competing for conference and national championships. And so there was a, a framework of what we what we were known for. We wanted to have a reputation that we were going to play with great effort, great togetherness, uh, you know, unselfish, and no one was going to ever outwork us. We we're going to have this unrelenting uh, work ethic and effort about us. And so then as time went by and you start, you know, establishing a little bit more of a, of a winning culture, then teams are going to or players are going to want to jump on board and, and be part of that. But we we honestly, in our first couple of years, like we treated it like a small business, you know, and most small businesses fail within the first five years, you know, and the reason why is because funding dries up, you know, or I- investors don't want to invest anymore because they don't see a return on their investment, or maybe even some of the internal personnel, like they just bail because like, this is too hard, it's too much sacrifice. And so we really approached it that way with our first couple teams where we, we made it very clear that this is our business and we need to attract more investors and we can't attract investors, attract investors if we got inside personnel that are leaving the program. And so we really stuck with those guys on those early years. And we made sure that we were focusing on their development and their, their contentment within the program, because we knew that, you know, when you bring in those other recruits, they, they're going to see, and they're going to, they're going to recognize right away, whether these players are happy, do they feel like there's a future here? You know, is, is this model, this plan that we had in place, is it actually going to come to fruition, you know, and, and sure, and sure enough it did. And those, those early season players were so 
critical to our to our current success that we've had. So I would say that those two things were, were really critical for us. And then, of course, it was just a, you know, an indefatigable recruiting effort, whereas like, you just cannot stop. I mean, you got to shake every bush and you got to really identify what you are, you know, what we stand for, and what types of players are going to work here. And we just went after a lot of them. And we've been fortunate to be able to attract a few of them. So when you look at your roster, I mean, there's quite a few Montana kids and you kind of pepper in some kids from uh, out of the area. I mean, is that kind of your plan? Uh, is that part of your plan to to have that group of Montana kids in there or just is that how it worked out? Yeah, that's that was part of the plan that we we you know, Montana is a great a great basketball state, actually. I mean, I know that the population is not super big, but, you know, just all my years of being able to compete as a player and as a coach in the Frontier Conference, you know, some of the better players were Montana guys. And so it's like we we knew we knew coming into this job that that we could establish a culture with these in-state players, because, you know, that's the thing about it. If you go and get a bunch of guys from out of state out of the area, what connection do they have to Montana Tech? What connection do they have to Butte to the state of Montana? I mean, they, they're going to they're going to get a sense of pride with the success that they earn as players, but it's not the same as being able to get high level in-state guys that are probably going to end up living in Montana someday, um, you know, with their own families or whatever. And they're always going to have that, that innate pride in Montana tech, you know? And so it's like, it means a little bit more for them. So I would say that it was definitely part of the plan. Part of it too is scholarship model, you know, where you're a state school, you're going to have some in-state scholarships versus out of state, you know, that's definitely a factor as well. But uh, it, it's it's been it's been a critical piece to to our operation here so you know i heard about your five-year plan when you got the job and i was just wondering about you know do you still have that five-year plan or have you approached it with different benchmarks now that you're having this success that you've you've had yeah really good question it it definitely changes i mean you you know it's one thing when you have a specific destination right where it's like hey we're at the bottom you know we want to get to the top all right what steps do we have to to, do we have to take to get there? You know, once you accomplish that, it's really easy to just be content and to be satisfied, you know, with where you are. And, you know, th then it, it changes, it changes kind of your focus from year to year. You know, it's like, we never wanted that to happen. And so it, it, now we have a different set of goals where it's like, where do we want to be in five years from now? And how do we get there? You know, and, and th this year, this past year was uh, kind of our first step in that is we, we knew that, that we have built a program where we can compete for a conference championship, but we wanted to see if we can get out to the national level and how far we have to go or how far we have to grow as a program in order to really compete at that end. You know, again, I can't overemphasize that, you know, we're kind of in our infancy here, you know, as a program, like this isn't something, this isn't a program that, you know, has been rolling for years and years and years, and they just have a, a great legacy of tradition and success. Whereas like, you know, th th that's a little bit easier to, to take over, but you know, so, so yeah, our new set of goals is we, we believe that we can, you know, be maybe the last team standing It's get a lot of things have to go your way. Uh, you got to catch some breaks. You got to be good. You got to be good enough to compete at that level, but you got to catch some breaks as well. Um, we certainly didn't catch any this year, you know, down the stretch, but, but uh, we, we feel like that with, with the right mindset and the, the right, um, uh, appetite for these new set of goals that we've established that we can get there within this next five-year plan. So I know that this is something that coaches uh, sometimes deal with is that they've got this success, you know, how are you kind of appreciating like what you've done to this point while still, you know, I know you have the, that drive that's like, okay, we got to get this and this and this to uh, get to that, uh, to, to that mountaintop. 
I would say that's the hardest part, honestly. Uh, it is because if you're a, you're a competitor and you always want to strive for more and try to be better, you know, it's like you always think that you can do you can do a little bit more. And it's hard. I mean, it's really difficult to when to you have a, a great season and and then that season concludes one way or the other. It's going to end. Right. And then it's really hard to just sit back and be like, oh, wow, look what we did, because your mind immediately transitions to what are we going to do next year? How are we going to make sure that we can compete at a similar level for the following season? So I, I think that it's, you know, what we've what we've grown to do as a program which has been really cathartic for me as a coach is that we we do we have a very special end of season banquet but we let time go by okay so we don't do it immediately after the season we do it on the last day of school of the semester and we we have all the families come and we have the players there and then at that point we're able to highlight all the successes that we did even even minor successes that maybe don't jump out you know on on uh you know, from the a media standpoint or whatever, but things that internally that we wanted to accomplish that we did. And then we highlight the individual, individual successes of our players and we give out our team awards and all those things. And it's such a wonderful night because it does provide us with that opportunity for at least one night, one time to just look back on the great things that we did. But I've always felt like for me, like that's the best time to do it is to let some time go by because we need to turn the page uh, we, we need to quickly transition from the 2022-23 season to the 23-24 season right away to get our recruiting finalized and our scheduling and, you know, our spring workouts and our, our off-season plan. And then once we're able to kind of get comfortable with with the, the you know, that that starting process of our next season, then we can really look back and enjoy what we did. So that's kind of where we are right now. I mean, honestly, here at the end of the March, like it's, it's really tough to kind of look. I haven't even watched the the last two games from Kansas City I haven't even looked at them yet because it was such a whirlwind I mean we we won the one game on Monday and then we had another game on Wednesday so immediately after that game our attention was turned to the next opponent you know and then as soon as we lost out on that Wednesday in the final eight you know it immediately was like all right we got to get back back to Butte and then once we get back we got to start recruiting yeah so one of the things uh you know obviously a highlight is that you have won back-to-back frontier conference championships and the last person to do that was somebody named kelvin sampson that did it like 40 years ago so you know uh you guys play on kelvin sampson court does he keep in contact with the program at all constantly yeah constantly he's uh he's an an incredible coach even better person uh, he has never, ever forgotten where he came from. You know, he came here. He was a I believe he was a, a graduate assistant of some sort or a student assistant at Michigan State with Judd Heathcote you know, way, way back in the day. And uh, Coach Heathcote helped him get on at Montana Tech as an assistant coach. And I believe he was making like three thousand dollars or thirty five hundred dollars or something. And so he was here for a short time and the the head coach ended up resigning like right when the season was beginning. And so at that point, it was too late to go out and hire another candidate. So they just said, hey, Coach Sampson, do you want to take over the program? And he did. Um, And, you know, his first year was tough obviously because he didn't have a chance to recruit and then his next three years were really good uh, and so he was here for four years in totality and then you know of course he has such a story career you know washington state oklahoma 
Indiana MBA University of Houston, but he's been he's been beyond gracious. He he's come up, uh, been a, been a commencement speaker at the university. Uh, he, he's had some teams that have, some some of his former teams that have been inducted into our Hall of Fame. He's come up and spent a lot of time with our team, sat us down in, in the bleachers and and just kind of really just talk shop with us and his philosophies and what he believes to win. We went down and played them last year early in the season. That was a tremendous treat. I mean, we had a great team last season. I felt like this team was super talented, but there was just something missing to get us over the hump and being able to go down there and compete against Coach Sampson like they. Just, they just laid out the absolute blueprint for what toughness is, you know, what effort is, and what what winning winning tradition and winning brand of basketball is. And that 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 game last year fundamentally changed our season. It's just because it was just a lived experience that you just can't get watching film or or even hearing about. It's like you have to live it. Uh, but anyway, Coach Sampson and I, we we communicate often. We we text back and forth a lot throughout the year, uh, throughout any any given season. You know, I love the messages that that he gives that I can share with the team. Uh, he it's a, it's an incredible resource. I'm very lucky to have to have Coach Sampson so close to the program. So you kind of talked about that idea of culture and having that toughness. What are some other off or what are some off court elements that you have in your program that help build that culture of success? Well, we do a lot of things uh, that attract people to campus. Even not not so much even off. Uh, not not so much off the court because this is a big on the court one, but we have uh, we have very successful summer basketball camps. And again, another another thing that we wanted to establish here, we we had the largest individual camps in the state of Utah down at uh, at Westminster. They were super popular, and we wanted to bring that model up here when we left there to come here. And you know, of course, just like just like the program itself, it took a little bit to gain that traction. But now it's like we have uh, incredibly popular camps where we get hundreds and hundreds of kids that come to Butte uh, throughout the summer, or through, at least throughout the month of June and early July. And our camps fill up really quickly, but that that is like the front porch to your program. That's how I've always approached it. Where it, you know that these kids come in, they're they're taking a chance, right? Their parents are taking a chance, or they're, they're investing money into their into their child's future. They they believe that hey, Montana Tech might be a good place. Let's send our kid there uh, for the for the week for this overnight camp, and you know hopefully they're going to have a good experience. And then when they come and they just get that that glimpse of what we're about, because we run our camps pretty much how we run our program. You know, they're they're pretty high intense. You know, there's great attention to detail. They're, we require tremendous effort. You know, they're, they're all about competition and, and self-improvement. Uh, it, it, they're really, really fun. But the kids go away with a great sense of satisfaction. And we've actually been able to generate a lot of recruits out of our camp system that have come, that have loved it. They, they love that, that basically that four day, that four day, you know, sneak peek or preview. And they think, boy, that'd be a great place to play. So that's been a really important thing for us, uh, you know, to be able to kind of establish that culture that you, that you mentioned. You know, we do a lot of things in the community as well with the local schools. Um, our guys are super active going out and, and being referees. They go and ref they go and officiate junior high games and and elementary school games and you know three on three tournaments or whatever and they're just out in the community and the the people see them and they know them and they they just love to see our guys so I just feel like being having that presence uh, both on campus and off campus you know it just really creates that positive forward momentum you know to where it carries over into a basketball season. So what made this team so successful this year? We had a great balance and uh, we, so it's a great question. So a little bit of context here, 
Mm-hmm. You know, we we had six seniors on our team last year, and four of them were what, what you would consider COVID seniors. They uh, during the COVID year of the 2020-21 season, they were technically seniors. They were in their fourth year, but that season did not count toward their eligibility, and so they all elected the return because they did not want the COVID year to be their final season where there was no fans and you know all that. So they came back. And we had an incredible year and we finally broke through and we won the regular season in the conference tournament in the same season. And we advanced to the national tournament and won the first game in the history of Montana tech at the national tournament. And so we, it was a historic season for a lot of reasons, but as soon I remember vividly, as soon as that game ended, we went back to the hotel and, you know, we got, got a little bit of food for the guys. And then I'm in my hotel room and I'm thinking, we just lost six incredible seniors. It's like, what is next year going to look like? You know, because it's a little bit of an anxiety. Now, of course, we've been recruiting all year and we felt comfortable with some of the guys that we felt like that we were going to be able to sign, you know, but we got them all together. But there's just so there was a little bit of uncertainty coming into the season about how how quickly they would come together as a team because it takes a little while. I mean, again, you're graduating a team, you're graduating six seniors, a veteran team. Guys have been playing together for you know, four or five, you know, three, four or five years uh, consecutively. So this team, though, what we felt comfortable with is that that all the pieces, they just fit together. You know, our our bigs fit with our guards. Our wings were the right type of wings. We had a lot of versatile parts. We could switch a lot of things. We had a lot of playmakers on the floor. We just created a lot of problems for some teams from a matchup standpoint. And we knew that was going to be the case. But again, it just it takes a while to be able to develop that continuity and that connectiveness. And we did a little bit faster than what I thought we would. Um, you know, I, I kind of my plan going into the season was I kind of thought that we'd be a little up and down in the first semester. And then by the time we got to conference play in January, that we'd start to be playing our best basketball, but we actually kind of clicked a little bit sooner than January. And that just carried forward into the conference season. Now you kind of alluded to this about, uh, you know, the end of the season, you, uh, you know, you had uh, some, some hiccups, if you will. I mean, you lose the frontier player of the year, you know, yep. in the first round. I mean, what was the first minute of the NAIA tournament? Yes. And so, you know, obviously you're not planning for that, but you know, how, how did you guys approach that as a coaching staff? Because, you know, there's so many kind of things to think about is one, there's the tactical stuff, but two, there's just kind of the emotions that go into uh, losing, losing a player of that, of that caliber. Yeah. So Caleb Belich, that was his name. He's a, you know, he's in his second year with us. He was a transfer from Montana State University. Uh, he's an incredible talent. He's a first team All-American conference player of the year. Uh, six, seven, bouncy, unblockable shot, shoots it high above his head. You know, he's incredible mid-range game, gets a step to the rim. He's going to punch it on you. You know, he's just high, high level guy. He's a guy that he's a guy that's going to play for money. You know, he's going to, he's going to have a long career should he choose to continue to play basketball. He's that talented. Um, and so, you know, our, our, our team and our program certainly is never built around one guy, you know, but he was a very important piece to us. Uh, but I would say the only reason we were able to overcome that injury uh, at that time, because as you said, it happened at a really awkward time. I mean, it was, 58 seconds into the game, you know, is our second offensive possession he made a move that he makes five times a game and just fell down this time instead of scoring it, he falls down and he did, he just was really slow to get up and it just didn't look good. 
Uh, but we have part of our culture is that of developing players. You know, it's like we have a lot of good players on our team. And you, again, it's it's the, the business model, right? Like we just don't lose a lot of players from year to year because guys enjoy being coached. They enjoy the day-to-day competition. They enjoy the opportunities that they know are going to come their way if they continue uh, to have the right approach from a day-to-day standpoint. And so, you know, we we had so we have so many good players that we knew that we could we could at least win that first game, right? Like we have guys that are ready to go. And so it's like your approach at that time is you can't worry. Unfortunately, you can't worry about a guy like Caleb at that point. You just can't because what what's going to happen is going to happen. You know, it's like you you have a task at hand, which is to figure out how you can you know finish this game and close it out. And we we have great training staff, and those professionals are going to take care of that aspect, right? And so we had the ne- we had to kind of change the way we played on the fly. And what we did for that stretch, not just that first game, but moving forward, is that we became a little bit slower tempo team, not too much, but we did we did slow down our tempo a little bit, and we became a much grittier and tougher defensive team, right? We were a good a very good, you could say, defensive team before that, but we became an outstanding defensive team because of the personnel changes that we had, but we had to evolve on the fly. And so what I did is, you know, certainly at halftime is that we, you know, addressed our tempo and our pace and our shot selection and and how we were going to run a few more half-court sets than we normally do just so that we can tempo the game. And we did that throughout the duration of that national tournament, and it really helped us advance as far as we did. What was kind of the dialogue between you and your assistant coaches during that time as far as, okay, we kind of have to transition and stuff like that? So during the, during the first game at, at, at halftime, it was simply, all right, what adjustments, what's, what immediate adjustments do we have to make? And that, that was kind of our central focus. And then once that game was over and we had that quick, that quick turnaround that, you know, whatever it was, 22 hour turnaround for that next game, you know, we, we met as a staff and that, that was very, that was, that was a very um, deliberate discussion that we had, you know, is that especially against the team that we played. Now we were very fortunate though, because the team that we played next, they were a slow tempo team, a slower pace team. And so we felt like, Hey, this is a great matchup for us. You know, we're, we're, they're going to, they're going to naturally slow the game down. It's going to be in our favor because we didn't want to play such a frenetic pace. You know, when we had a, when we have a full stable of players and a full roster, then yeah, we want the game to be 85, 90. I mean, correct. In our conference championship game, we scored 103, points we set a, a conference record for the most points scored in a conference championship game you know because we had the ability to score in bunches but you know so we came out with a very much more deliberate approach and we want to be more measured with how we played and and credit to our guys they were a, they were really able to adjust on the fly you know there was a couple guys that we had to reel back in just a little bit you know but most everybody else it, it, it benefited the whole more than the than the parts right so we were a sum of the parts team at that point and it, it was a it was a great thing for us. Now, obviously, you know, we feel very confident that if we had a full roster, we, we could have advanced further than we did because our, our talent was pretty remarkable. But, you know, they, that's what happens throughout the course of the season. You can't, you know, you can't look back and say well, what could have been. I mean, you can only focus on what you have and what you can do at the moment. So let's talk about playing up-tempo, though, because, it, you know, based on your scores, it looked like that's, you know, the way that you like to play. You got a lot of playmakers and stuff like that. As a coach, what are some keys you found in playing kind of up-tempo offensively that uh, that coaches out there that want to want to push the pace, what, what do they need to think about? It's a daily approach is the first thing. You cannot 
you cannot say you want to play fast, right? And then not ever practice playing fast, not ever, ever breaking down the concept of playing fast and expect your players to do it, right? Every player that comes to, you know, every player that's talented, you know, that's whether that's at college or NBA or high school, it doesn't matter. You know, every talented player wants to play fast. They always say, oh, I like to play fast, but they don't want to put in the effort that's required to play fast. You have to be a very well-conditioned team, number one. Number two is you have to have a, a, a immaculate sense of spacing on the floor, right? Because spacing is so critical to playing with pace because if you're, if you're playing a little bit, you know, too fast and your spacing's out of whack, you're going to be a high turnover team and you're not going to be a very efficient offensive team. So spacing is, is critical, right? And then of course, shot selection, right? That, that is such a big thing because you want to play, you want to play fast, but you got to really teach your guys what a good shot is. And again, that comes throughout the course of a developing a team aspect throughout the, throughout practices, right? Whereas like, if you dedicate certain segments or portions of your practice to where you can get live play up and down the floor, you can really address with your players specifically what types of shots are quality shots and what are not quality. And that, and, and, and part of that too, is comes with, you know, some of the, maybe the more resources that we have at the college level where we have more access to film and we get all of our practices broken down and things like that. And so we can watch a lot of practice film and teach what that, what a good shot means. But I can tell you this, and for all the coaches that are hearing that are listening is the number one, the number one thing for us with, uh, with playing fast is you can't turn the ball over. We were number one in the country in fewest turnovers committed per game, which is incredible for a team that scores 85 points a game. We committed eight turnovers per game is all right. And so that that was a the biggest point of emphasis in any practice was not turning the ball over. And we had you know, we had specific kind of consequences, I guess you could say, for our guys that did turn the ball over throughout the course of a practice because we needed to emphasize it. Because if you want to play fast, you want to get more. The whole purpose of it is to get more shots at the rim, right? And so you're not getting any shots at the rim if you're turning the ball over. So those are the most important things for us is conditioning, you know, daily emphasis on playing the pace that you want, shot selection, right? And then also not turning the ball over, you know, and, and everything else is going to take care of itself. If you can just really accomplish those four things. It's probably, well, probably a lot different for us at the high school level, as you talked about there um, in regard to kind of teaching spacing. I mean, is that something that you have to spend a lot of time with? Um, I know that you've got kind of a veteran team that's been in your system for a while, but is that something that at the beginning of the season uh, takes a little time? Yes, absolutely. It's it is the first the first offensive concept you teach is spacing for us. It is. And we make it really simple. And we, we don't ever assume doesn't matter. Even next year, you know, with the prospect of having the majority of your roster back, we don't we won't ever assume that they understand what spacing is. We will start over from the beginning and and teach what a two pass gap is versus a one pass gap. Right. And like those things are so critical to, to how you play, you know, how you move off ball to create that space for your teammate. You know, and that, and that those are kind of the biggest fundamental uh, elements of, of teaching spacing is to have that quick recognition of am I two pass? Am I in a two pass gap or a one pass gap? And if you're if you're caught in a one pass gap, then it's a quick decision about where you're going to vacate or where you're going to cut to. So you can just create that better space for your teammate. So it's like those things are so important. I mean, we we I. I if you're, and again, there's, there's more than one way to win a basketball game, you know, and I, I want to make that very clear. Like we have not always been a, a high paced team, 
right? We, we, we haven't always had the talent to do it. We have always evolved. Every year we assess what talent that we have and how we want to play. If you have, we had a year, we had a season, our 2019-20 season, we were a, I would consider a, a moderately paced team. We were just more probably in the mid seventies, uh, mid seventies to upper seventies, you know, most games, but that team had two outstanding scores on the team. And then a lot of really good solid role players that maybe weren't as talented uh, on the offensive side of the floor. And so we wanted to get things more in the half court and make sure those two guys got the majority of the shots. And then the other players, their shots came off of the playmaking ability of those two dynamic offensive players. Now, when you have five guys that can all play and it can all make plays and make good decisions, you want to be able to maximize your opportunities to have a lot of players contribute to, you know, your offensive output. And so that that's that's why you you look to play with a little bit more pace. So, again, there's more than one way to play. But in, in this particular scenario, it's about it is way more critical to teach your players for us to teach our players how to play versus how to run a play. Like I, I can't overemphasize how important that is, because if you're going to play with pace, there's going to be a little bit less structure outside of spacing and decision making than if you're coming down and just running a set every time down the floor. Right. And so like teaching, teaching players how to play is a daily, it's a daily endeavor <laughs> and it, you can't take a single day off or your players are going to, you know, it's, it's going to go sideways quickly. Well, that, Starts with transition offense. So, I mean, what are some of the principles that you're teaching these kids so that they can get out and play and make those decisions? Well, first, it's a defensive rebounding effort. You know, you can't run if you don't get defensive rebounds, you know, and so it's like that. That's the the, the number one aspect is we got to we commit five guys to rebounding. We're not into guys leaking out, you know, playing fast doesn't mean you got a guy hanging out at half court trying to get a long outlet pass and race it down the floor. You know, we, we have certain rules for who we allow to be able to snatch the ball off the rim and initiate the break. You know, there's certain guys that we want to outlet. And there's certain guys that we want to push, right? So those are big. We 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 practice this a lot. Again, uh, you can't just ask your players to do it. They don't understand it. You have to demand it and you have to do it on a daily basis. You know, we, we run to certain spots on the floor, right, uh, to create that initial spacing. Our, our big, our five man, he's got two choices. He is his first three steps down the floor, are the most important three steps. If he can get uh, if he can get a step ahead of his guy, we expect him to rim run. He's going to get all the way to the rim, and we're going to create a ton of gravity on that rim. We're going to pull help defenders in, and then hopefully we can get an inside-out shot. If his if his defender is ahead of him, he's going to sprint to the nail, and he's going to stop at the nail at the foul line, and then we're going to initiate kind of our ball screen motion offense where that's a really hard ball screen to defend when you're on a dead sprint down the floor and you stop at the nail and you change directions and you come back out and you set kind of a 45 or a flat screen. Those are really tough angles to defend as a defensive team. And so like those those decisions are really big with our with our fives, right? And then our point guard or whoever the we allow to bring the ball down the floor to advance it, it's his mentality is can I get to the rim or not? And if he can't get to the rim, then we expect the ball to be moved up the floor with the pass. You know, otherwise we we want we encourage them to, you know, try to get all the way into the paint. So again, these types of things we have, we actually have a ton of breakdown drills where we we create these scenarios, you know, where it, whether it's a, a three on two or a two on one, or it's like, it's, it's, it's various competitive drills that are very structured where we're trying to teach our guys to get downhill in space. Right. And again, that goes back to teaching your guys how to play 
you know, or, or your players how to play versus run plays. And so the transition game is big. Uh, but again, it's a fine line, though. I mean, you got to be comfortable with certain decisions that your team is going to make and for us we try to simplify it into a couple different things don't turn the ball over and don't settle like that we use that word a lot don't settle we we try to avoid we try to avoid saying bad shot or whatever because like we want if you're going to play with a little bit more pace you want your players to be aggressive and you want them to be confident to believe that they can go make plays on any given possession and so the whole mindset of hearing don't settle for that shot. You can get a better shot. That's a whole lot better for their mindset and their psyche to say, yes, I can still be aggressive, but I did settle for that one. I could probably get a little bit deeper on that drive than what I did. And so, you know, again, your communication and things like that are, are, are really key to that. What about the transition between the transition and the half court offense? I mean, are there certain concepts that you're teaching uh, the kid? You obviously talked about your big uh, going out there. And, you know, I thought uh, I was able to watch a little bit of your uh, quarterfinal game. And so it was pretty interesting just watching him work and, you know, uh, determining what to do. So what are some of the rules there for for maybe somebody like that in, in that in-between uh, phase between transition and then half court stuff? So when we start the season, we uh, we break the we 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 kind of have uh, we do a lot of transition drills when we change our shot clock. And so what, what we'll do is like we'll start kind of in the half court and we'll just create a scenario where a shot's going to go up and the, the defensive team then quickly transitions to offense. And we put 10 seconds on the clock. Okay, and that shot clock is going to go for from 10 all the way to zero. And we reward our team with double points. If they can score within that first 10 seconds, they get double points. Right. And then we let we actually literally let the let the shot clock buzzer go off at zero and then it quickly resets to 20. So now you get the the the, the final 20 seconds of the shot clock. And so like we're trying to help our players to transition in their minds of we got that 10 seconds to push and to seek early offense. But once that 10 seconds expires, now we're seeking the best shot on this possession, right? And so it's like those, those types of breakdown drills are really big with conditioning your players how to make that, as you said, that transition from transition, right? Where you play a little bit faster, a little bit more frenetic, pushing for early offense to now all right they got they got back they stopped us we're in the half court now we're going to work our offense and we're going to get the best shot that we can get so uh, i know that this is something that high school coaches both in idaho and montana are going to have to deal with is that idea of the shot clock ending so i mean if a high school coach came to you and said okay what are some things that i should teach my kids about you know uh that end clock situation what what would you advise them yeah, I actually get this question a lot from high school coaches, you know, especially this past fall, um, you know, and this past summer I was at a coaching clinic up in Great Falls. And, you know, that was kind of a big, a, a big theme is like how to approach a shot clock and, you know, how to score, how to score with limited time and more possessions and things like that end a game, whatever. So lots of questions, you know, from that point forward. Um, but what I really try to talk to a lot of coaches about is, you know, when you get to. 10 seconds. Number one is you got to have a call for it. Okay. What's your call when you get to 10 seconds? Like we, our call, we yell butter, right? So like when it gets to 10, like we're just yelling butter, you know? And so everyone knows what that means, right? That it's like, it means you have an eternity to score. Because sometimes when you get the 10, you're, you start to panic and think, oh, my gosh, you know, it's like we got to go take a quick shot. 10 seconds is forever in basketball. OK, so number one is have a call to alert your players that, hey, we got to 
we got to have a little heightened awareness here that there's 10 seconds left. Okay. Number two is don't back the ball. Don't stop what you're doing and back dribble to half court and say, we're just going to set a high ball screen. That's like the worst thing you can do because now you let the defense set up. Right. And it's like, they're going to load up on that play and your options are going to be limited because it's like, there's not very many, there's not much time to be able to make one pass, you know, let alone two or three passes to, to exploit a defensive rotation. So we really, we really try to emphasize continue to work within the the set that we're running or the the offensive uh, you know flow that we're trying to accomplish at that point. And we just really, when we get to that 10 seconds or less, we try to get a little bit more aggressive. And I try to encourage the coaches to teach their players, get more aggressive going downhill, right? When you get to that under 10, make it more of an emphasis to get into the paint, get up, get two feet in the paint, draw defenses. Nothing bad is going to happen by being more aggressive and trying to get into the paint. Everything bad is going to happen by being passive, by staying outside the three-point line and trying to get a hard contested shot at the end of a shot clock. Nothing good ever happens out of that. So the can have a, have a call for it, you know, at 10 seconds, be hyper aggressive trying to get downhill and don't change what you're doing. Try to be aggressive within the set or the offense that you're running at that particular possession. All right. Some great points. I got one more question for you, coach. I really appreciate your time. So uh, you did not have a senior on this year's roster uh, yeah. as a coaching staff. There's got to be some high expectations uh, both from you and your players, and then also probably from the community. So, um, how do you how are you approaching uh, dealing with those expectations? And just you know, what what are some thoughts that you have as you uh, make that transition from this season to next? Well, experience will be a big thing that we lean on. You know, these these guys. Uh, you know, I, I think that if you're ever a team that you're not the last team standing right, then there's always something to play for the next year, you know, because your your season ended sooner than you than you wanted it to end, you know, and, and the way that uh, the way that we that we kind of ended our season, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that we were satisfied with, you know, so I think there's a lot of driven players that we have, which is really a healthy thing, you know, our guys feel uh, that they can accomplish a little bit more than what they did. And I, I hope that's true, you know, and I, and I hope they they carry that with them this entire offseason. But that that experience, though, that was the one thing that we were missing this season is, you know, we, we lost, we lost uh, four, four, one possession games uh, all on the road uh, this season, you know, before our last loss of the year, you know, we only had five losses, but four of them were one possession games on the road. And those uh, in a big, in a big way, were just because of lack of experience, you know, it was like end game scenarios. Now they were great for our development because like I said, you can't failure is the greatest teacher. You know, and having those lived experiences and you grow so much as a player and as a coach, as a program. And so that really benefited us later on in the season when we were in similar scenarios, uh, those those end game scenarios. We were able to overcome maybe some late game deficits or hold on to leads or make those winning plays late in the game. And so that that experience is going to benefit us next year. But I also look back to, as I mentioned before, we we came out of that COVID season, the 2020-21 season, and we virtually had the entire team back. Uh, and we added one great player, Caleb Belich, who was the conference player this particular season. We added him. 
And that team was so driven and so focused because they all wanted to win together. And again, that's part of, that's kind of part of your culture, you know, where it's like, if it, if your mantra is do things together and you're stronger together, then it's hard to find cracks. You know, you're not going to have that disease of me so much, you know, that, that you, maybe you have with other teams that are, have a successful season, they return some players, you know, so we're, we're really going to lean heavily on that aspect. And I can tell you another thing too, is that we had uh, arguably one of the top, you know, two or three players in the whole conference sitting on our bench as a red shirt this year, you know, because he was a, he was a, a transfer from another school in our conference. And so he had to sit this season. He's highly motivated and being able to now incorporate him into our, into our, our player personnel, it's going to be exciting, but uh, these guys are, they're driven, they're hungry. You know, I actually was a little bit more concerned coming off of last year's team, you know, where the returner from last year's group, they heard it from me every single day in the spring, every day in the fall. They, they heard me tell them you have, this team hasn't won anything, you know, last year's team won this year's team has won Zippo. Right. So it's like, it's a brand new journey every single season. And these, this, this team, these guys that are coming back now, we've already turned the page. They're already hearing that same message from me already. <laughs> it's like the 2023-24 team, they haven't won a thing yet. So it's like we every year is so different and every journey is different. And there's just no guarantees in this game. I mean, it, it may feel good and it looks great on paper that you have so many players back, but there's there's a lot to prove on the floor too. Well, Coach, it's been a pleasure to uh, to get to talk to you. I really appreciate your time, and I can't wait to go to uh, Yoke's uh, grocery store and tell your aunt that I uh, <laughs> that I uh, got to interview you. Well, that's great. Tell her hi for me. You know, I I love going up there. I wish I had a little bit more time. I, I try to get up there as much as I can in the summer. It's a wonderful place. Uh, what a year for North Idaho uh, it, from a basketball standpoint. So much success. You know, you mentioned Bonners Ferry, uh, state runner up. You you know, the Sandpoint Girls won, uh, Lake City Boys won, you know, Lakeside. Yeah, Lakeside Boys, Coeur d'Alene yeah, Girls. Coeur d'Alene yeah. Girls won. I think Lakeside, Lakeside Boys won 1A and Lapway mm -hmm. was the runner up. So there were so many quality teams uh, in North Idaho. It's just a, it, it's a, it brings a lot of pride to me, you know, being a North Idaho resident to see so much success there.